This week on the opening bell, the heavyweights very much take centre stage with lots of news around concerning the big men and, of course, Alexander Usyk taking just his second important step into the land of the Giants. We're going to reflect on that as well as the swashbuckling wild performance from Javonta Davis over Leo Santa Cruz. We'll get a word from Leonard Ellaby, of course, Mayweather's right-hand man on what's next for Javonta and what they made of the performance, as well as a little backdrop information to him making weight. Lots to get our teeth into, Matt, but the heavyweights very much in terms of the news lines taking centre stage right now. Where do we start? I suppose uh, Povetkin's COVID-19 positive test is uh, top of the list. It has to be, doesn't it? It has to be. Um, I mean, just to kind of some context on, on that for us at Boxing News yesterday, we're putting together 48 pages of the latest issue. Um, it's Tuesday, it's press day. To say those Tuesdays are hectic would be a massive understatement. And to kind of give an indication of what I'm doing at these on these days is I'm just going through, I'm doing uh, picture captions, I'm subbing, checking facts, writing bits and bobs on a Tuesday. Um, and all of a sudden we were more or less there. Pages are being sent to the printer. I hadn't even seen that Povetkin had failed uh, the COVID test at this point. So I was a little bit frustrated we didn't manage to get that in the issue this week. But it's, it's, it's huge news. It's huge, huge news. My first instinct, apart from I was a little bit peed off that we didn't get it in the issue, was it's a blessing in disguise for Dillian White. I think we'd said it on this podcast. I've seen many educated people suggest that perhaps just coming a few months after a savage knockout loss to Povetkin, that, that going straight into an immediate rematch, however brave, um, could have been a mistake. So I thought, well, this could work out great for Dillian White. The, the, the line is that it's going to happen instead on January the 30th, an extra two months. That will only help Dillian White. It's not going to help Povetkin. But now we hear that Dillian White may well be out against somebody else on, on November the 21st. And whether that's the correct decision, I guess the opponent will tell us that and the outcome of that fight will tell us that in the long run. Um, but I just think... From Dillian White's perspective, if you're in the Dillian White business, it's just, okay, let's just, just, just focus completely on getting revenge over Alexander Povetkin in January. Things move fast, don't they, in the, the sporting boxing world. So by the end of this podcast, <laughs> the, the balls that are in the air right now may well have dropped or have been passed to another's hands. But right now, what are the, the kind of other names that are being thrown in? I, I hear Chisora, even Tyson Fury. Those are all sort of names that are being thrown up in the air. Yeah, a lot was a lot was said. A lot was said, um, kind of a, a, as 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 this news was breaking. And that, uh, yeah, if we take him step by step, you've got Derek Chisora, who just a few days after losing to Alexander Usyk in a quite a grueling fight, is saying that he's fit and well and will take on uh, White uh, in a couple of weeks. Should that should 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 can if if that could be arranged. Um, Book. Good Lord. Dillian White versus Derek Chisora 3. It's not exactly the trilogy fight that we're dreaming of. I guess you can you can see why it would make sense if you just look at the surface. Their first two fights were exciting. Um, Chisora will always give value for money. And I think you have to give a lot of credit here to David Hay, who, if you're a young fighter and you're looking for a manager to guide you and cheerlead you in this sport, then David, what David Hay has done in reinventing Derek Chisora 
and shouting from the rooftops about this third Dillian White fight. Um, and it's getting a lot of interest. It's getting a lot, a lot of interest. Not all of it is negative. Uh, that's the power, frankly, of social media. We've seen it, and I don't want to stray into the murky world of politics, but we've seen it with Donald Trump, with what he tweets out. Now, he's got 87 million followers. What he tweets, it doesn't matter if 87 million followers believe him or not. What matters is, as long as a small percentage do, then it's job done. And that's what we've got here. As long as a small percentage will buy into this Dillian White versus Derek Chisora third fight, then you could see it happen. But the flip side of that in regards to David Hay is he's his manager. Of course, Chisora is going to say he can fight again in a few weeks, but he's had 10 losses in his career. Let him have some recovery here. Um, I don't think this is a good idea in the slightest. So we move on then to what Eddie Hearn was saying um, and throwing it out there, throwing throwing the ball into Tyson Fury's court, saying, well, you've got a fight on December the 5th. You haven't got an opponent yet. Why not fight Dillian White? As fans, that's that's the option we'd like. That's the option we'd like. I'd be, frankly, astonished if that was to happen. And then you've got Michael Hunter, who is saying that he'll step in and fight Dillian White for nothing, doesn't even need any payment. Michael Hunter is uh, would be a very tricky assignment, I think, for um, Dillian White at this stage, given that he will have been preparing for someone like Povetkin for this amount of time already. So Michael Hunter stepping in, who's a polar opposite to, 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 to Povetkin, um, would be a very risky fight to take at this stage. You kind of then go back to Gizora, who would probably fit the bill for Dillian White's people, and you start to fear the worst. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to talk about what's pay-per-view worthy uh, when we reflect on Usyk uh, against Derek Chisora, which happened last weekend. We'll come to that in due course. You mentioned Tyson Fury. Uh, his opponent, potentially, the name that's been thrown into the ring and a contract has been sent out is uh, Ajit Kabiel, who's unbeaten in 20 with 13 knockouts. What do we know about him? How does that look as a fit for December the 5th? Uh, he's unbeaten, I think, in 20 fights. Um, he's decent enough. Uh, kind of outskirts, you could argue, of top 10, top 15. Can't imagine he is anything like a threat to Tyson Fury. But we've seen with Tyson Fury before that when we perceive that his opponent is levels and levels below, um, Tyson Fury can sometimes slip down those levels and, and fight at a similar level. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not. It's, it's not the greatest thing in the world. But at this point in time fighting a 20-0 guy who has been in with some decent guys. He's beaten Derek Chisora in the past. It's not the worst thing in the world for me. And speaking of Tyson Fury, he and Deontay Wilder, of course, go hand-in-hand hand on the back of their uh, two fights. We're supposed to have fought again in the next month or so, wasn't it? That was the, the sort of return rematch trilogy uh, fight that was penciled in. Uh, the recent um, online video from Deontay Wilder having a pop at Fury saying effectively that he should be a man of his word and, and that the rematch should be on, the whys and wherefores of all of that. But the, the list of excuses that continue to come out of Deontay Wilder's mouth are starting to, to stretch the bounds of reality and believability. He started with a costume, didn't he? Too heavy. He was worn down by the time he got it. Then there was uh, talk about Fury's gloves one way or another, the shape of them, the knuckle. Uh, down at the end of the glove. Then there was something in it. Talked about water being spiked. And now the final kind of nail in his public coffin, surely, seems to be this reference to a disloyal traitor. 
which is a clear reference uh, to his now jettisoned a former a trainer and coach, Mark Mark Breland. That that will be for many boxing fans the straw, Matt, that that breaks the camel's back. Is this just Wilder reaching out Trump style to get a, a story and to get a hook, no matter what, to, to try and get Fury back in the ring? How, how do you read this? How how do we in some way explain it? I think the only way you can explain it is that we're dealing with a very, very troubled mind who frankly shouldn't be anywhere near a boxing ring at the moment. That's that's the way I look at it. Um, I think some of the things he's saying are really, really bothersome. I thought the the excuse that came out in the aftermath um, that was uh, the with, with the costume, you kind of forgive that. Boxers say these kind of things in afterwards. And there may even have been a thought process when he was trying on that costume that, crikey, this is heavy. Maybe this isn't such a great idea after all. Um but then what you're getting now after months and months of silence when there really should have been, you would think, kind of months and months of reflection uh, of, what, of what went wrong there. And then he comes out with all of these, uh, what, what appear, what we, what we say is we, we, what appear on the surface. We, we're not privy to, to, to the ins and outs of the relationship with Mark Breland and Deontay Wilder. We've no idea what's gone on behind the scenes there. But it would appear that Mark Breland acted in... Deontay Wilder's um, best interest when he stopped that fight. I mean, I was there watching that fight. It was just getting increasingly brutal to the point where you feared for Deontay Wilder in that fight. And it's not... And and, and, and when Wilder says, um, yeah, I was just getting back into it, and then he decides to throw the towel in, he was taking a pounding in the corner. His head was being rocked back. It was becoming a difficult thing to watch. Um, So if after all this time he's still convincing himself that that he was hard done by in that fight, then that's very, very bothersome. Um, So, yeah, going back to where I started, it speaks of some serious problems in Deontay Wilder's mind. Why is saying it all now when it's clear that the window had closed for the rubber match? That's what we're being told, is that there was a time limit for him to accept and agree terms for that rubber match, um, and that, 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 that window closed. So it's almost as if he's kind of looking now and seeing after being unsure about it for a little while, about wanting to get back in the ring. The moment that opportunity uh, kind of ended for him, he's just like, hang on a minute, this is what I want. I do want it really. Give me, give, give me a chance. Um, but the way he's going about it is, is all wrong, all wrong for me. And I, I just worry about Deontay Wilder at the moment. But where is he going to be in a year's time if he, if he carries on like this? I think that the first thing he needs to do is go back watch the fight with an open mind and address where he went wrong. Otherwise, he'll never, ever return to anything like he was. Let's return to Usyk against uh, Chisora. Uh, Usyk uh, winning it on just a second start in the heavyweight division by six points and then 115 to 113, so just two uh, points in it on two of the other judges' uh, scorecards. Um, we've had time to reflect an extra couple of days. We did a, an initial reaction Sunday morning on the pod where we both thought, that Usyk won the fight a little more comfortably than that in terms of the scorelines, if not necessarily in terms of the, the action. You've had time to reflect now. Your impression of the performance of Usyk? Yeah, my impression is, is, is largely the same as it was, I think, on, on Sunday. I still believe that, that Usyk was more than a comfortable winner. I think at the time I scored it 10 rounds to two, watching it again, you could go to 8-4 at a push, but I'd still, I'd still be very, very 
um, happy and secure in, in handing in a, a 10-2 scorecard in, in Usyk's favour with that fight. I think that's, that, that is how I, how I viewed it. Uh, Usyk wasn't perfect. Um, I think he's getting unnecessary kind of criticism for that fight. I think really, if you look at it, Again, there was a point in the seventh round where Chisora was exhausted. It looked like he was going to be stopped. You could argue that Usyk decided that wasn't what he wanted to do or he didn't feel overly comfortable with that. Was that because he'd felt the power in the early rounds and he decided that he wasn't going to go in there and, and, and risk taking in too many of those? Or is it just because he's a very clever fighter and that's what he does? But I do think if the stoppage had came in the seventh or eighth round, we'd be having a different conversation now. We also have to remember that Alexander Usyk was out the ring for the best part of 12 months. Um, it was his, probably, although we have we had the Chaz Witherspoon fight, it's the first time he had, his body was really acclimatised to the heavyweight division. First time he'd had any length of time really being a heavyweight, walking round as a heavyweight. Um, so I think we have to take all these things into consideration. And we spoke about it briefly on Sunday. The big question, of course, is, well, what happens next? And, and can Usyk... Uh, go on to beat some of the top guys. I think he can. I'm not saying he will, but I think he can. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a valuable conversation. But what I will say as well while I'm on it, and um, apologize for banging on and on, but what I will say while I'm on it is that the talk is with a W, he's WBO mandatory. So therefore, will Joshua come next? Um, just because the WBO say that he's their number one contender doesn't mean that he deserves to leapfrog a lot of people. What I will say about beating Derek Chisora, um, and I might sound like I'm down on Derek Chisora in this podcast, just to be, just to be, you know, frank on that, I'm not in the slightest. I've got all the admiration in the world for Derek Chisora. But beating Derek Chisora, a man who that was his tenth defeat, um, he's lost the majority of his biggest fights. Just beating Derek Chisora does not earn Alexander Usyk the right to gate crash uh, a party that's been going on for too long now. And the the point of that party is to crown one true champion. We still need to see Joshua and Fury next. Now, we're led to believe that that is what will happen next year. But the concern is, is that Anthony Joshua has been advised for so long and he's got it in his head that he has to have all four belts, otherwise he won't be regarded as the true champion, that he may decide to take on Usyk next. It's not what I believe is going to happen, but it has to be a possibility if we look at the way Anthony Joshua has done his business over the last few years and been so keen to get all of those belts. What everybody needs to make Anthony Joshua aware of is that it doesn't matter what they're fighting for. What matters is who he beats. So the only way we're going to get a true champion is if the number one heavyweight in the division fights the number two heavyweight division. We haven't had that for years and years and years and years. It has to happen now, otherwise it won't. I'm a great believer in that, Matt, and I, and I almost hearken for a day when all of these belts and the sanctioning bodies just really don't have the power that they, they have. I think it's an unrealistic a dream. And I think one of the, the reasons for that is, imagine that one or other of Joshua and Fury lose, should they meet, and, and they did it for nothing, for, for no belts. They just said, we know we're the best. They're going to get paid a chunk of money Fans are happy, TV promoters, everybody's happy because that's the fight they want. But the loser, if they lose, 
even if it's a great fight, it's not guaranteed that they've got a route back in to the, the party. The door is, is left ajar for them. And that's, that's the biggest challenge, I think, for any of these fighters to try and grasp the nettle and for all of us maybe to push forward into a different climate. I can see what happens for the loser. That's the, that's the, that's the big difficulty. What, what bargaining power have they then got to get themselves back into the, the discussion? Let me just ask you a, a couple of points about Usyk in terms of the bigger bigger guys but also in terms of the performance are, are we being unfair to to go back to to 2014 was it when fury jabbed chisora into submission and essentially outclassed him often in the southpaw position and then uh, the the different nature of of Usyk's performance at the weekend are we, is that fair in any way to make the comparison to therefore extend the discussion and say there's a clear indication of how much more difficult Usyk will find things against guys like Fury and against Joshua. Let's not forget, he's 6'3", 78-inch reach match. He's, he's giving up six inches and seven inches in height and reach to Fury and three and four to AJ as well. Yeah, I think going back to the kind of when you start to compare what other fighters have done to, to kind of Derek Chisora is, and this is where we do have to give Derek Chisora all the credit in the world um, for what he has done over the last few years in that he has almost redesigned himself. He's dedicated himself to the sport and it's no secret. I mean, you speak to Don Charles about what was going on in the build-up to that Tyson Fury masterclass, admittedly, in the Chisora rematch, but that was not the same Derek Chisora that we saw the other night. Yet, Usyk still won the vast majority of that contest against one of the best Derek Chisora's that possibly could have been. Um, I take on board what you're saying about Tyson Fury, particularly with his wingspan and his height and, and everything else. And not only that, not only that, he's such a versatile and gifted boxer. He's brilliant. And, we're, and, we're, and all of a sudden, to add to that, what he showed against Deontay Wilder is he can be aggressive and hit frighteningly hard as well. Um, I think Tyson Fury is is the most difficult conundrum for any heavyweight to solve, whatever your name is, whether it's Joshua, whether it's Usyk or whatever. But what I will say is that I think Usyk now, uh, as a heavyweight, I think what he, he because he's a smaller heavyweight, in a way that's also it's also an advantage for him against the bigger guys who are used to fighting bigger guys. And I think that... I think that he he could give Fury some problems, but the the fight that I think that and I can understand why why Usyk is is kind of aiming at this. I think for Styles and what Usyk could do against Joshua, even though you have to take into consideration Joshua's immense strength and power, and he's not he's not a a raw or crude boxer himself. He's very skilled himself. He doesn't get the credit for what he does in the ring. But if we go in, if we're just going to put it down to a matter of size, then Let's have a look at what Andy Ruiz did against uh, Anthony Joshua. Did he do what he did? He get win that first fight because he was a little bit heavier because he had because he's so weighty. Uh, did, did, or was it the fact that he had fast hands, clever feet, and he knew exactly what to do when he was on the inside against Anthony Joshua? That's the kind of fight that I think we have to imagine when we're looking at U6 chances. U6 says he is going to force uh, that uh, position with the WBO. And he said in an interview in recent days 
that basically if Anthony Joshua is going to have to, if he's going to fight Tyson Fury, then he's going to have to vacate that WBO. So I think there's going to be a lot of politicking going on behind the scenes with uh, Matchroom, with Anthony Joshua, with Alexander Usyk, whether there's going to be step aside money um, and, and a promise made verbally, handshake or in writing. I think there's going to be a lot going on behind the scenes between those three people and, of course, including uh, top-ranked Frank Warren and, and Tyson Fury as well. So much to discuss. Let me just come back to the rest of the card. Uh, you had uh, Lee Selby losing to uh, Cambosis, the Australian, pushing himself into the mix and in line to face uh, Teofimo Lopez after what Lopez did against Lomachenko. And I'm not sure anybody gets too excited about that as a, a prospect, but that's how the sanctioning bodies and the ranking system should work if you want them to work. And Savannah Marshall with a terrific performance against Hannah Rankin. The looked, in truth, not just one, potentially two-way divisions between them, I thought, on the night. Uh, he was just too much for Rankin. But take nothing away from Marshall right from the start. Her boxing was excellent. She won that vacant WBO uh, title, and she did it in just her ninth fight. So fantastic performance by her. And now she's put her name in the mix, matter alongside of, of some of the other leading ladies that have starred in previous months. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought she was she was really really impressive um, the other night. I thought that 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 how well the game plan was executed. I thought Peter Fury was great, um, and the way that she slowly but surely kind of increased the potency behind her punches as she went along. So it was almost a shock in the fifth fifth round or whatever when Rankin is feeling everything, and she in the end she was looking for an escape and. It was it was a frightening exhibition, and I think we mentioned there. You know, Savannah Marshall's only had nine fights. It's a different. It, it it's kind of a different uh, criteria over there, isn't it? If we look at if we look at Hannah Rankin's record, which is now something like nine wins and five losses. If you just take that on paper, you say, well, that's not particularly impressive beating somebody like that. But Rankin has been in there with with some top names, and uh, to see her stopped was was a surprise. I've got to be honest, and I think we have to give Savannah Marshall. All the credit in the world. What we now want to see and what has to happen is a fight with Clarissa Shields. Yes, indeed. Or maybe en route to that, Christina Hammer, Tori Nelson or the unbeaten Emma Cousin as well. All potential names may be en route to, to what would be uh, quite a significant fight. Let me just ask you, we mentioned Savannah Marshall there. Uh, Tommy McCarthy, European title fight was on the bill and Selby Cambosis in a world title eliminator. That on the undercard of Usyk against Chisora. Uh, we gave great credit to, to Eddie Heron and Matchroom for, for what happened during fight camp. My own personal view is that they got slightly lucky with the fights rather than the matches. I thought they end up ended up during fight camp with some terrific fights and some tremendous results and some outstanding entertainment as well. I think it was the fights that delivered rather than necessarily the matches. What about this as a pay-per-view card? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be perfectly frank. It was If it wasn't for such a glowing performance from Savannah Marshall um, on the undercard, that 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 was poor. That wasn't that wasn't good enough. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the defence from Eddie Hearn as it was. And I think I go back to when I remember when I was interviewing him after the Tony Bellew Nathan Cleverly rematch, where I was I was I was up there ringside for that. And it, that that was not pay per view quality. And his 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 retort was, well, it's not 
not necessarily my fault if the fights don't deliver. Um, but I don't think that the fight was strong enough for the fights to deliver um, on a pay-per-view card. Um, maybe all would have been forgiven if Usyk and Chisora had been a undeniable barn burner. It wasn't in the end, was it? It wasn't. So it does kind of bring that debate back to the forefront. What is pay-per-view? Um, what is pay-per-view worthy? If people are buying it, does it therefore mean it's a pay-per-view? Um, it's 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 an age-old debate. Yeah, but but, the, but what, the one thing I will say on it is that we can criticise Sky Sports till we're blue in the face for this. I can understand why Usyk Chisora was a pay-per-view attraction, but if it's if it's not a world title fight, if it's not an elite matchup, then the undercard has to has to um, deliver, um, and it, and it, and, it, and it didn't. But my point: we talk about this, but then you've got on November the twenty eighth on BT Sport, Roy Jones versus Mike Tyson as a pay-per-view. That all of a sudden becomes the worst pay-per-view ever. But you understand why? Because people will be willing to pay for it. It also begs the question as well. Do you, can you consider something not pay-per-view worthy before the event and then change your mind because of what unfolded in the main event or, or one or two of the undercard fights. Does that suddenly become a pay-per-view event because it delivered fantastic action? Is, is that not incongruous? Is, I, I'm not quite sure about that as a, as a discussion. Because let's not forget, or is it just because the main, let's think of Canelo, for example. Quite a few of those Canelo undercards were thin very thin and all the money was pumped into Canelo uh, and some of it to his uh, opponent or in the case of Golovkin, uh, a good chunk of it as well. But th those, I mean, I went to the, the first Canelo Golovkin fight in, in Vegas and that, that undercard was thin on the ground, no doubt about it. So th there has to be a discussion about what it is that you consider pay-per-view. But if you are saying it's just performance, Matt, then Javonta Davis against Leo Santa Cruz. It probably, you could describe it as a pay-per-view fight beforehand, I think it's fair to say, regardless of what you thought of the undercard. But without question, to a man, woman and child, anyone who watched that either live or the next day, the morning as I did, you watched it live, will have come in a way thinking, we got a pay-per-view performance from Gervonta Davis on what was his debut on that particular platform with Showtime. He was spectacular. He was brilliant. He, 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 he was brilliant. And it wasn't, it wasn't all one-sided. Um, I, I guess there's a lot of people that will have just seen the knockout. They didn't see what went, went on before that. And I think the judges, after five rounds, Davis was a point up. That was first perfectly feasible, perfectly feasible scorecards. Um, yet it could have been 48-47 for Santa Cruz as well. Who is, who is an elite fighter, Santa Cruz? And what Javonta Davis did, and I know we we we, we spoke about this on Sunday, um, but what a punch! What a punch! I mean, you, you, your first instinct is it was it was just pure genius from from Javonta Davis, but then you look at it again and you start to and you see that Santa Cruz three times, three times with his back to the ropes, is trying that right hand. First one lands, I think. The second one, Davis blocks, and the third one, he slips. And lands the mother of all uppercuts to to take uh, Leo Santa Cruz clean out. 
and it's it's not the obvious punch to throw when you know when your opponent's throwing the the right hand because he he ducked out almost Alexander Povetkin style. He leaned off to the left, didn't he? Yeah, and then he came back inside and underneath the right hand, which had been thrown. You've got to time that absolutely perfectly. The, the, the chances of getting your his left hand caught up in the right hand as he's trying to pull it through as an uppercut as the right the chances of that not coming off are so high but he managed to produce it and the result was just electrifying i've got some reactions of people who uh, got in touch with us uh, matt uh, you and i uh, via twitter and the, the, there's several reactions that kind of chimed uh, across the the nation um huckleberry got in, in touch with us he said he was watching with his wife in the next room uh, because of his explosive reaction to the the punch and and the fight, his wife came storming through from the other room. Said, "Well, you know what's happened? What happened?" And he he said he just shouted "Wow!" repeatedly and stared dumbstruck at the screen. Uh, David Allen being in touch as well. Not the the fighter, the boxer. David Allen, another David Allen. Hi, David. Says that KO will haunt my dreams for a while. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> There's one of uh uh. uh it was one of those that I saw ringside at York Hall does exactly the same and more on that shortly. And um, Andy A.G. Starman, uh, who's a regular follower as well, he says, seeing something special here in Javonta Davis, the kid is a star, he said. Uh, people, I think, have spoken to other sort of people in the business, just other fans on social media. The reaction seems to be along the same lines, Matt. Just wow breathtaking wow what was that it was and, it, and, it, and it's it it will go down it will go down in history i think as one of the one of the best knockouts that we've we've ever seen and i think as you as you kind of described there it was it, it, it it's how difficult it is to throw that punch where where javonta davis was and to get that amount of power and rotation in your shoulder in order to do that um yeah, simply astonishing. But what it speaks of is a very special fighter and one that with Tiafimo Lopez at lightweight, with Devin Haney kind of on the way up, um, there's some really nice fights that we can make down in those divisions. Um, be interesting to see where, interesting to see what, what division he ends up in, uh, Javonta Davis. But you sense that long term it's going to be a lightweight I think so. Arguably, right now, there's some better fights at Super Feather. If you throw sort of Oscar Valdez, Shakur Stevenson uh, in there, Berchelt, uh, you've got as as well, Diaz, this, this Jojo Diaz, that is. So that this, that there are some interesting names at Super Feather. And interestingly, you spoke to, to Leonard Ellaby earlier on uh, this week to get some reaction, uh, what next, and maybe also... Uh, some thoughts on, on where he might be best or where he might be able to fight realistically. So let's hear what Leonard had to say because uh, some interesting points, particularly about making weight. First of all, I mean, I'm still in shock and awe at that finish on Saturday night. It was a incredible finish. And I think exactly... You watch it on, you watch it on TV5? I watched it on Channel Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a tremendous finish. Just what the sport needed, and just what Javonta Davis needed as well. I mean, for you who's invested so much time into Javonte Davis and been telling everybody how special he is for a number of years, how satisfying was that 
performance and of course the finish for you personally? Well, it's, it's always exciting, you know, because again, he went out there and he worked really hard. You, you know, he, he, um, he made the decision to um, relocate his training camp here to here in Las Vegas. And it was the best decision of his life. He got himself in some terrific shape and he, he put on the performance of his life to this performance. And, he, and we had four fights and four, four KOs. I mean, so the entire car delivered. You know, we're just really excited that every everyone um, who tuned in, they left away very happy. Have you had any indication of the pay-per-view numbers in the States yet? No, not yet. Not yet, okay. I mean, the thing is, it's almost, although obviously you will want as many people to have bought the pay-per-view as possible, but at this point, it's almost irrelevant because that knockout has gone viral on social media and been seen by millions upon millions upon millions. So in a way, you could argue it's job done. Oh, most definitely. He, he delivered. He showed up and he showed out. And I also want to give lots of credit to Leo Santa Cruz. Well, he's a great fighter. He's a, he's a great warrior. And he fought his heart out. And um, he, came, he, he came up short on Saturday night. And um, he showed you why he's a a true champion, and he went out on his sword, you know, so um, you can't do nothing but respect that, and um, I'm just really, really excited about, you know, where we're headed with Jamonte in his entire career. And for you, I mean, Javonte Davis has kind of built up something of a, a reputation as a very heavy hitter, um, exceptionally talented as well, but there's always been that fear that he may not make weight. How nervous were you last week prior to the weigh-in that he, that he may struggle to make 130 pounds? Well, that, that was just, that was just more so I, we weren't nervous at all because I know where he's been. You got to understand I've been in the gym with him every day. So in, in the, in the camp, I maybe missed a couple of days, you know, whatever, but um, he's shown that he was very focused and he put in, he put in all the hard work, you know, leading up to the fight. I knew where his weight was. He he was on weight two weeks, two weeks ago, right around there, you know. Um, he was right at like 34, you know, two weeks ago. So I, I knew, you know, and now and then you of course you had the naysayers out there saying, oh, because I think he had posted a picture. So oh, it's an old picture. And you know, so that's up for up to not you per se, but to the media and the fans to go back and forth at. We knew that we were going to have no problems with making the weight. It was just a matter of him just focusing and biting down. He had a chef, and it really, really worked out well. You know, and this is his first time having a chef, you know, so moving forward, that, that's what's going to happen. And, um, again, he was very disciplined, and he followed uh, his coach's game plan. And, hey, you saw the results. Absolutely, absolutely. Where does his future lie now? Obviously, he's got two, he's got two titles in, in different weight classes. Um, I know he said just line them up and I'll knock them down, but is there, is there a preference in which division his immediate future will lie in? No, there's no preference. He's just going, he's just going to fight in the biggest fight possible. And what, and what is that? Don't know. How, how, I mean, obviously with what Tiafimo Lopez did, 
uh, a couple of weeks ago with a great result against Vasily Lomachenko up at lightweight. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you've got a genuine, genuine super fight between Javonta Davis and Tiafimo Lopez. Look, okay, let me stop you right there in your tracks, okay? Tank Davis is the biggest star in both weight classes. So any fight that he's in, it's going to be a huge fight. It's always great to have a, a great opponent um, that's out there. but And it don't matter. You can mix and match any name that you pick. Tank is going to beat them, okay? So our job is to put him in the biggest fight possible for the most amount of money. We're not going to let this person, that person, say you fight, got to fight this person, that fight. Tank ain't going nowhere. He's 25 years old. And all these guys, the good thing about all these fighters, they're all young. So I think they all, I think that these guys are going to fight. I think they're all going to fight. Now, whether it's this guy got next or that guy got next, I don't know in which order it's going to be. But if they're around, they're going to fight. But we can't fight everybody in his next fight. So that's, again, that's for you guys to talk about and worry about that. We're not concerned about any of that. We're going to put our, we're going to put our young champ in the biggest fight for the most amount of money. And whatever name that happens to be, that's what it's going to be. And looking at the looking at the WBA rankings, you've got you've got got at lightweight, you've got Rolando Romero who's at the top of the WBA rankings. At super featherweight, you've got Chris Calder. But those names are not quite as enticing as Tiafimo Lopez. From what you've just said there, it does seem that you will be intent on making the best possible fights for for Davis. Exactly what we're going to do: put him in the biggest fight possible for the most amount of money, and there's no name attached to that. Yeah, that sounds good. And I've, I've got to ask you, I mean, we've, um, I've, I've spoke to you before in person in Las Vegas before. Um, and generally, the conversation is always about Floyd Mayweather. Um, how nice is it to talk about something other than Floyd Mayweather for a change? <laughs> well, Tank is a, a young rising star in the sport. And um, he's gotten the, the mainstream, mainstream attention. And we're just going to keep that momentum going. And again, put him in the biggest fights possible you can make yeah it's not about nobody it's not about the other guys it's about what we're doing for our young champ you know what i mean it's just like so we don't really concern ourselves with, with you know we're going to get the fans the biggest fight that possible that's what we're going to do how 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 difficult was it to kind of promote this fight in the current world that we live in um it's, it's definitely difficult you, you know, but we obviously found a way to be creative. And um, thanks to, you know, my team, Showtime, PBC, you know, TGB, um, GTD, um, you, you know, it was a terrific event. You know, we were the first ones to be able to fight in front of fans, which was a, um, a, a definitely very um, challenge. It was very challenging. You know, but we were able to overcome it. But our whole focus was to uh, keep everyone safe. You know, so we put all the necessary protocols in place to ensure that. And we, we, you know, we came out of the event. You know, everything worked out great. And um, it was just a tremendous sacrifice and 
I'm very happy that, you know, we made that sacrifice and we, we got some phenomenal results. We had a terrific turnout and then we had a phenomenal ending of the cycle. And I thought that everyone who tuned into the fight, the entire card delivered. Four fights, four KOs. It gets no better than that. And what was what 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 was Floyd's reaction to uh to the events and to Davis's progress on Saturday night? Oh, he was, I mean, I'm sure you saw him. He was he was ecstatic. I mean, you know, this is young protege. And um he went out there and and Javante showed up and he showed all the way out. Listen, I'll let you go, Leonard. I know you're a busy man and you've got a lot of people to talk to. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks very much. You take care. Thanks, man. Okay, plenty of sound bites there, Matt, as you'd come to expect from Leonard and from uh, Floyd Mayweather as well. Lots of pay-per-view chat too. What were the most important or the more interesting things that he said in that interview? I think I think that that we get an indication there that Javonta Davis has now got a chef. He's now got a nutritionist. These are things that were kind of alien to him before. Um, so he's spending all of his training camps under a close watchful eye in Las Vegas. Um, so that has to be good for his future. I mean, I did try and work out what might be next for um for for, for Javonta Davis um yet the, it was it was fairly the answers were predictably pretty non-committal i think the the answer that he said more than once was it will be the best possible fight for the most amount of money um one has to hope that that is against the the, the best available challenges for him really or the best available opponents for him what we've got now with this knockout um is a platform, a platform to build on. And as I kind of identified in that, in while, while talking to Leonard, is that he's got these WBA belts. Whatever you may make of those WBA belts is, is, is a different matter. But what we have to look at is the rankings there. And there's two fairly non-exciting uh, names at the top of the super featherweight rankings and the top of the lightweight rankings. What we want to see are some of these fights that you were talking about earlier. Uh, this now could be lift off for Javonta Davis. Do you know what I liked as well? Obviously, there was a little historical nod and linked it to Mayweather in his ring walk costume. He came in with a sombrero. He was decked in the Mexican color shorts as, as well. Uh, of course, taking on um, a Mexican American in the shape of uh, Leo Santa Cruz. And that takes us back to 2007, of course, when Floyd Mayweather came to the ring decked in a sombrero, the Mexican colors, as he was going to take on uh, a fighter in Oscar De La Hoya with the same kind of heritage. That was his fourth pay-per-view, I think, Floyd Mayweather. This, of course, was Javonta Davis's debut on Showtime, where uh, Mayweather ended his career, having started it, I think, on, on HBO. The numbers for Mayweather prior to Oscar De La Hoya were around 350, 360, 370,000. Those were the kind of numbers he was doing early on in his pay-per-view career. When he took on Oscar, suddenly two and a half million. That the spike, and that, I think, I've said it before, that Mayweather, every morning that he wakes up, instead of smiling at himself in the mirror, he should get straight on the phone to Oscar De La Foya, and he should just say, Oscar, Thanks, man. Thanks for setting me up for life. Because that's exactly what, what happened. It was the golden goose. It was dancing with the golden goose. 
and culling the golden goose in, in Oscar de la Hoya that, that made Floyd Mayweather. And it was a nice little historical nod there with the costume, etc., coming in. Uh, that knockout, I think, has probably made Javonta Davis as well. And I don't think we're going to see him off pay-per-view anytime soon going forward, Matt. No, and I think kind of going back to what Leonard Ellaby said there, because I did ask him about pay-per-view numbers and he was just more or less ignored the question. Just said, no, haven't had anything yet, which we don't know, but that may not indicate they were that great. Now, he went on to say that Javonta Davis is the biggest star in the super featherweight division and the lightweight division. But back to that pay-per-view, back to that pay-per-view argument, what we had a few weeks ago was Tiafimo Lopez beating Vasily Lomachenko in front of three million people. No way on this planet that Javonta Davis has just done what he did in front of three million people. I think, and again, going back to what you say in regards to the Oscar De La Hoya uh, versus Floyd Mayweather fight, I remember being really excited about that. But it does speak of how important it is for um, the, 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 the leading fighters to fight the leading fighters and to have the right dance part- partners when they're on that pay-per-view platform, if they are going to operate on that pay-per-view platform. It was interesting, in between rounds, it was between the third and the fourth rounds, Mayweather went up to the corner and started speaking to Javonta Davis, who turned his head. And interestingly, Davis did come out uh, more aggressive. I mean, I think he came out trying to knock out Santa Cruz in the first round, was my own interpretation of it. And he came out aggressive in the fourth. I'd, I'd be shocked and astonished if Mayweather was saying to him, go on, son, put it on him. I'd be absolutely astounded if that was the advice coming in the corner. All the build-up in uh, those um, Access All Areas shows, there was two of them. I don't know if you watched the map. They were interesting. And, and all throughout that, the recurring theme from Mayweather was, cool down, don't be a hothead, Davis. This is a 12-round business, 12-round business. And that was the mantra being repeated again and again. So what I love most about this whole event and the way that, Javonta Davis went about it. What I love most is that he's been backed by Ellaby and Mayweather, calculating, stylish, uh, crafty, talented boxer, no doubt about it, but um, careful and calculated in everything he did, both inside and, and out of the ring. And here's a young lad in his mid-20s who's just come out on his pay-per-view debut with all that backing and all the advice he's getting in his ear. And he's come out and he's just said, do you know what? This is about me. We're going to have it. And I'm going to get it done in spectacular fashion. And that's the abiding memory I come away. I think, do you know what? Fair play, mate. I'm with you for the rest of the journey now because of this. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. And I think, but I think there was going to be a lot of... Floyd Mayweather looking back on that fight and, and kind of remembering what he was like as a young fighter as well. Kind of now the freshest memories are of that crafty guy that would win pretty much every round against whoever, whoever he was fighting. But we can go back further in time to the savaging of, of Angel, uh, Angel Manfredi and the, uh, the way that he took apart Diego Corrales in, in, in devastating fashion. And what Mayweather did was kind of morph into kind of a more safety first fighter. But you have to be an, a, a very skilled fighter to do that. It'd be interesting to see where Javonta Davis ends up in the long term. Um, but it's a, as you say, it's a journey that, that we should all invest in. 
the adventure is up and running. We can't wait to see the next chapter, the next leg of it. Speaking of sort of pay-per-view and money and all of that, interesting comments coming out of Devin Haney's mouth recently. He's got a fight this weekend, first defense of the WBC uh, title. Which one that is? I have no idea, folks. Um, obviously, franchise champion Lomachenko, who lost... Uh, the other week there to Tio Lopez. But Yuriokis Gamboa, who was stopped in the last round by Javonta Davis back in December, he's the guy in the other corner. And the interesting thing is that the last couple of weeks, Devin Haney said, my goal is to be the first billionaire boxer. And now with that, and he said, and acknowledges himself, must come billion dollar performances. So he's putting on a bit of pressure to perform. I think he's got the perfect foil in Gamboa this weekend to perhaps put on that billion dollar performance, whether he can become the first billionaire boxer, given what Mayweather's already accomplished and how he went about it. That's a strong, strong statement, man. Your, your take on that. I think that at 21 years old, that there's no need to keep putting pressure on yourselves when, when, when you've got so much of your career in front of you and, but you understand it, things that are kind of sound quite outlandish and quite outrageous tend to, generate the most headlines these days so you can understand why young fighters say things like that and it's good that he's got that ambition um the gamboa fight probably won't it probably won't excite too many and i kind of look back at when gamboa started and i was i was sold on gamboa big time when he started and it's a shame almost that he's now fighting he's fighting the likes of davis and he's fighting the likes of um devin haney when he's well past it and even the, the first time he really got that that marquee name. He was past it then, and that was when he put up a really good fight, though, against um, Terence Crawford. Um, but what Gamboa has still got is that fighting heart, but I think he's, what, 37, 38 years old now? And he was a fighter that relied on his reflexes, and the reflexes were, 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 were not perfect when he was at his peak, let's be honest about it. Um, he relies on his speed, so I, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't make a case I can't even make a small case for Gamboa winning this fight. No, not at all. Crawford, uh, nine rounds. Castellanos, seven rounds. Twelfth, it was the last round when Javonta Davis uh, stopped Gamboa. So those are the markers, and that's what Devin Haney will be going after. And, of course, worth remembering, he's only 21. Goodness me, the nonsense that was spouting out of my mouth when I was 21 and in, and older, and perhaps still do. So uh, maybe that's fair enough for such a young man. Four years younger than Javonta Davis. There's some perspective uh, for you. And on that undercard, uh, Philip Urgovic. Uh, who's unbeaten in 11. He's one of the fighters uh, that um, Eddie Hearn was telling us about a month ago, wasn't he? That, that he would he would willingly let go on to BT Sport if they wanted to make a fight with uh, Dubois. That was one of the names he said, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll let him go uh, effectively because he doesn't necessarily bring uh, fans stroke uh, the, the, the big backing with him. So that's all going on uh, and coming up this weekend. Just a quick word on Noya Inui as well, who stopped Jason Maloney. That's 17 stoppages in in 20, defending uh, the Bantamweight title uh, once again, or two versions uh, of it. Um, I've watched that again, not as many times as I've watched Javonta Davis, which I've gone through four times now. (laughs) Four times (laughs) four times I've watched that, that fight back and slowing down at the ending of it. So spectacular was a bit to Inouye. He's that sort of precise. He's almost like a 
a surgeon, isn't he? The way he goes about it. Left hook did the damage early and then it was the right hand that finished it all off. Yeah, it's kind of almost a shame that that the that, that what Anui did, which was let's 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 not beat around the bush. It was a masterclass. Maloney is a good fighter. Um, he's a world class fighter, and Inui was in great form. And the finish was very impressive. It just so happened that it happened to be on the same night as uh, as that Javonta Davis punch. Um, but Anui is a fighter who appears appears like he can do everything. Um, what 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 next for him though? What next for him? I, yeah, well, I, I, funny thing was, I, listen. The obvious next is perhaps that uh, John Riel Casamero uh, fight that was scheduled for a, a couple of months ago and uh, wasn't able to take place. He, the Filipinos, he's one of my favourite fighters right now. He is nuts and he's getting better and better. And he would happily take on a new. So I'd like to see that. Uh, he said he wants that or the WBC uh, Nordino Bali, the champion, taking on Anito Denaire, who, of course, was involved in that spectacular fight last year with Inui. They're fighting for the WBC upcoming, and he said he wouldn't mind the winner of that one. So the, those are the obvious fits. And I, to be honest, I'd happily see him in any of those. Rematch with um, Donaire or uh, Ubali, who I've seen ringside um, when he fought in Kazakhstan. The fight I'd really like to see, though, is John Real Casimero. That... Yeah, that that would be good. Yeah, we spoke about that. It's one of the um, one of the casualties of the, of uh, of the pandemic, unfortunately. Otherwise, otherwise, we'd already have had that fight. Um, yeah, that that that's terrific. Um, and you mentioned Ubali there, and I think what I'd like to see Anui doing. I mean, we're always going to have this chat about when a fighter is as good as Anui, and particularly when he's as small as Anui as well. Is that kind of the only way is up? Then we keep moving up through the weight classes. But it would also be nice to see. Anui stick around for long enough uh, at bantamweight to completely clear out the division. So there's no question marks whatsoever. Too often, when we talk about all these various world champions, particularly in modern history, in recent history, we talk about Manny Pacquiao winning titles in eight divisions, Floyd Mayweather not that far behind him, but how many of them actually won world titles where there was no argument in that weight class about who was the, who was, who was the best fighter? This is what I'd like to see with someone like Anui to do. But I suspect we'll see him moved up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I've not seen him in the flesh yet, but just looking at him on, on TV, what was reinforced again at the weekend is I, I, he just doesn't look like he can go much higher. Much as I, I think Chocolatito was the same, once he got to Superfly, you know, people were almost saying he'll he'll be like Arguello. He, you know, he'll go up to, to lightweight. And and actually, when you see the size of him, and I think it's the same with Anui, I, I think Bantam's the limit, but maybe his punching power, maybe chasing history, maybe ultimately they'll squeeze more. Worth remembering, of course, he started at light fly. He jumped fly. He didn't even fight for a world title at fly. He went straight to super fly and then Bantam weight where, where he is now as well. I, he's been in 15 world title fights over six and a half years. And interestingly, a name that was thrown into the ring by the man himself Regan Doe has been saying, he's been calling himself the lineal champion and he's teasing Inui, can you believe? I couldn't believe my, my ears or my eyes when oh, I saw him. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. Kind of, Regan Doe, kind of going back to, um, you know, he's been, I remember I used to, I used to work for, um, for uh, KOTV and it seems like a lifetime ago, I've got to be honest, but it was a wonderful job. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But we put together a film or kind of a little featurette um, about the Cubans. One of them was Gamboa. One of them was Rigondo. 
Um, these guys have been around forever. Rigondo, though, I mean, out of all the fighters that so many you would say did not fulfill their potential, Rigondo was was and probably is one of the most naturally skilled and gifted fighters I've ever had the privilege to watch. He's also one of the most infuriating and mind-numbing boxers I've ever had the misfortune to witness. Um, it's, But you kind of, just because of how good he is, um, if we can forget about the fact that he's, I don't know how old he is in reality, he's got to be 40-something, surely. Um, but if we can forget about that, uh, it's it it is a vaguely sellable fight, um, but then you look at back to Rigondo when he stepped up in weight and he was stopped by Lomachenko. I mean, with hindsight, he was he was far too small for that. Um, what he's got left though now is 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 a different matter. But yeah, I mean, what a blast from the past, really. You almost thought you thought he'd gone away. I know he's had a couple of fights now and again, but yeah, not not overly sure. I'm I'm welcome with this reappearance. Yeah, what a talent though. What a character. I, I remember Steve Lillis telling me that he. he he interviewed him once and he, he just spent the whole interview munching through a, a box of Oreos and, and well, uh, snar- snarling and a really interesting little character. But wasn't that, that I, remember, I remember that. I think, wasn't that the day before the weigh-in as well? Yes. And he, yeah. still, he still made weight with plenty of room to spare. <laughs> funny, funny character. Before we move on to this week in history, just one other uh, tweet that, that uh, interlinked. I should have mentioned this when we we're talking about Usyk. Uh, Chisora, one of our regular listeners as well, that's Phil uh, Rogers, um, who was talking about sort of Tony Bellew's, uh, well, cheerleading, I suppose, effectively of Derek Chisora during that fight. You could, during the commentary, you could you could hear Bellew bellowing in instructions to Chisora. And, and then, you know, going to Bellew for, for his take on the card and then his thoughts on the fight afterwards, is, is all of that appropriate? Fair, understandable, right? How, how do you view it? I understand. I understand the the criticism with that. You can't expect uh, someone who's uh, kind of been so involved with with Derek Chisora for a long time. You know, they they they, they go back. They go back a long time. They've they've, they've sparred. They've great mates. Um, you can't really expect someone to be overly objective at that point. Um, and but you kind of look at it from the other side. Bellew, okay, Bellew has sparred Chisora. He knows Chisora. He's also fought Usyk. You could then argue perhaps there's no one better. But what I will say on it, and although I completely understand and largely agree with the criticism here, what I will say on it is this is nothing new. Um, you you get people, you get members of. If you look, go back and look at fights. Back in back in even in the eighties, the nineties, and more recently, you, you you get brothers being asked whether they think their brother is winning in the ring and what have you. Um, I th- sometimes, when someone is so emotionally invested in it, it can be interesting to see. But for them to to, to ask them to be objective, um, you know, I think Bell, you might be getting the criticism here. It's not his fault, um, but yeah, I, I I can understand both sides on that one. This week in history, we're remembering November the 5th, 1994. Yes, 26 years ago at the MGM when big George Foreman made a bit of history, winning back the heavyweight title at the age of 45 against the 26-year-old Michael Moore, unbeaten in 35. So much to talk about in in this one, Uh, Matt. It was terrific to, to watch it back and... I was uh, read, reading some of Teddy Atlas's uh, autobiography where there's a, a chapter 
dedicated to this as, as well. And I've got a couple of lines to to read out for that. But just kind of set the the scene for us in, in terms of Foreman's journey, because you know people will think lost in Zaire, um, went away, came back to the ring. Um, won back the heavyweight title, blah, la 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 la. But th- there was a lot going in in between. There was so there was so much going on. I mean, he was he was he still. I mean, after he lost to Ali, I mean, we won't go back too far. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. But it was the Jimmy Young fight that that convinced him to retire. Then he had the he had that vision of God or whatever in the dressing room afterwards. And then he walked away from the sport for ten years. And when he came back in 1987, um, his comeback. You know, he came back without any hair markedly bigger um he was considered a joke it wasn't going anywhere he i mean people only really started to think that he could be a threat was when he was knocking out people like a past it jerry cooney adelson rodriguez um and then he had that tremendous fight with evander holyfield and gave it everything but then you, you, at that point i think he's 42 years old that that was thought to be that's that's as good as he can possibly get now. He, he went the distance with a young, hard-hitting champion in Evander Holyfield, and that's it. But it wasn't. He, 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 he also lost, he lost to Tommy Morrison. In, he almost lost every round a year before this fight with Michael Moore. There was two years before that, he had his face absolutely mashed up by Alex Stewart to the point that an American magazine, I can't remember if it was Boxing 91 or Boxing 92 or one of those magazines, had on the cover, it had a, had a close-up of, of Foreman's mashed-up face, and it just said, get out now. They feared for George Foreman's future. And Michael Buffer, actually, and I mentioned KOTV before, but we also did something with Michael Buffer, and we talked about this fight. Michael Buffer said he was so convinced prior to the Michael Moore fight that this would be George Foreman's last fight and that he was going to lose, that he made damn sure that he gave him the best possible introduction that he could. And if you listen to Michael Buffer give the introduction to Big George Foreman, then you can see where he's coming from with that. Nobody expected George Foreman at the age of 45 years old, 20 years, more or less to the month after he'd lost to Muhammad Ali, to beat the unbeaten Michael Mora. And a great supporting cast as well. Teddy Atlas, the always quotable uh, soundbite uh, story in your corner, Teddy Atlas and Angelo Dundee um, was alongside Bob Arum, the, the, the backing uh, of Bob Arum, Angelo Dundee in George Foreman's corner as well. The fight very nearly didn't take place, wasn't it? The WBA weren't happy with Moura uh, fighting with, with Foreman. So he was threatening to, to pull out um, Bob Arum. I'm not scared of uh, uh, lawyers when uh, required to do so. Uh, throwed a, a suit in their direction and eventually the, the, the fight went on and it's a, a fight that's got a little bit of myth about it I, th- I think one of the myths is that basically Moura won every round and it was a lucky punch or if you listen to Teddy Atlas Moura was well in front and it was a punch that was been working towards and working towards and and working towards and, and when the moment arrived uh, Teddy Atlas said in his, his book, it's a great line. And this is from the from the streets to the, the ring, uh, which is worth a read. There's, there's lots of good stories in there. But Teddy Atlas says in, in that, about the in the chapter about Big George, he says he spent 20 years preparing to throw that punch. And there's an element of, of, of truth. There's a great story there. But I think, Matt, if you watch the fight, 
foreman is throwing and landing that right hand all night, all night. And he lands it about five times in that round before he lands the big one. So it's not as if Moorer didn't have the, the warning. And the, the whole fight is fought relatively in the centre of the ring in close proximity to each other. Murad really didn't keep the distance at all through it, but it's worth a watch. There's there's various versions of it. There's a whole uh, HBO special, which is about an hour and a half long, dedicated to it as well, where they, they look back on the fight with interviews and all sorts. So there's so much coverage of it. But what was your take of the fight itself? I think just as you've just said there, I think the way that... I mean, at the time, um, even though Foreman was having success... There wasn't a feeling that all of a sudden one of these right hands is going to land and he's going to knock Michael Mora out. But what Foreman was doing, as you identify there, he's just finding the range for that right hand. He's waiting and waiting for the opportunity that he knew would come again until he put everything behind it. But you say he put everything behind it. Even now, when you watch it, I was watching it again this week, it's not like the Davis Santa Cruz knockout. It's not like the Davis Santa Cruz knockout, which is devastating and and and. and blows you away but it was it was an accurate punch and it shows how hard George Foreman could punch and you mentioned you mentioned there about the the myths of the fight what has often been said in this fight is that George Foreman was wearing the same shorts that um, he had on the night he lost to Muhammad Ali now I asked I was lucky enough I've spoke to George a few times he's, he's always wonderfully wonderfully generous with his time but this is one of the questions I put to him and I said is it true that they were the shorts that you wore when you lost to Muhammad Ali. And if that is the case, why on earth are you wearing shorts into a ring that you've lost in? I could understand it, perhaps, if you wore the same shorts where he knocked out Joe Frazier to win the world title for the first time. But apparently they were not the exact same shorts that he wore to fight Muhammad Ali. What he did is he had several shorts that were identical made around that time, and this was just one of the leftovers that he thought he'd wear for, for, for this particular fight. But it's, I mean... There's, there's, so, there's so much history in this fight. And I think we can say, Burt Sugar, I remember saying, um, I remember Burt Sugar saying this was the greatest comeback in the history of sports. Now, Burt Sugar is not really known to understate anything, was he? Um, but uh, it, can you argue with that statement? There's no question in my mind it's the greatest comeback in boxing history. It really, to win the world title 20 years apart, we're never going to see anything like that again. 10 years out of the ring, came back in 87, 24 fights in a row he had before he got a go at, at Holyfield. So 24 fights it was over four years before he got that world title challenge, lost in 91 to Holyfield, won another three. And then two years later, he lost on points convincingly to Tommy Morrison for that uh, newly um, erected WBO uh, title and then it was a year later that he finally faced Mura and mentioning that punch mat as well it almost when you look at it it almost looks like a push doesn't it it's so short and clean through the the guard and he just rocked Mura a couple of seconds before with the right hand and I think that was the one that set up the second punch it looks like nothing but it clearly was and so much so that it split the gum shield and forced Murrah's tooth into his mouth, which was then covered in in blood. And there's a great line also in the in the book from from Teddy Atlas, talking about later on that night they're in the elevator going up in the in the hotel, and it was just Atlas, Murrah, and one other person that were going up in that elevator. There was no 
big entourage, no big crowd, no friends hooping and hollering, just the three of them. Uh, it's a great image of a, a fallen champion dabbing his mouth uh, with the blood coming out and, and looking for that tooth that's been replaced. You often, it's, it's, it's natural to focus on the winner of, of, um, of, of, bo of boxing matches. It's, 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 it's natural to do that. It's always fascinated me about what happens to the loser, what goes through their mind in the aftermath. And it's not just like, it's not like he got knocked out by Evander Holyfield or Mike Tyson or Riddick Bowe. He got knocked out by a 45-year-old man who was not given any chance whatsoever. You could argue, even though he came back and I think he won a version of the title, I think he won the IBF title, um, he, he, he kind of ruined Michael Mora. Um, but what a story from, from George Foreman and people that listen to this regularly will know that now and again I'll have a look, little look and see what was number one at the time and now and again it's appropriate. It's really appropriate this time. Right, so <laughs> in, in, at, that, at that point in time, uh, November 1994, the number one was uh, a song by Pato Banton called Baby Come Back. Baby Come Back. Pato Banton. Goodness <laughs> me. That, that, folks, was 1994, November the 5th, and there were indeed fireworks in the MGM on that occasion. Watch that fight back uh, and enjoy. There's so much to reflect on through that. One uh, the final point we had a... a tweet as well regarding the music what's the the entry outro intro outro music uh, that's been put together that's our, our podcast uh, producer Darren Reese. he put that together I think it's his music I'll find out the name of the, the tune but it's quite catchy man you you put it on when you're having a bath don't you but it's just it's never off it's never off uh, no it drives my drives my wife absolutely round the twist uh, whenever she hears it um, but then we have had a fair few people on Twitter say that they, that they enjoy it I mean yeah I don't know the story behind it but Darren who we haven't mentioned enough frankly over the last few weeks since we've been doing this who works tirelessly behind the scenes to get these things out there uh, on a Wednesday night or Thursday morning so th thank you for that but what he did is he sent over I think there was something like 15 15 tracks um, for me to listen to and to choose one. And yeah, that one, for whatever reason, stood out. But uh, yeah, to say it gets in your head is an understatement, isn't it? I didn't see or hear any music. There wasn't any dance tunes in there, was there? <laughs> you, you deliberately kept away from me. Uh, pulling rank, Matt Christie, pulling rank on the Opening Bell podcast, which you've been listening to this week. We hope you've enjoyed, folks. We'll see you again next time. Bye for now. 